Welcome to a very special Project I'm Speaking episode of Bull Spirals. Project I'm Speaking episodes are a series of interviews conducted with the intention of featuring brave and talented women who agreed to speak up about their creative process, about how they found their unique voices, and how they intend to use those gorgeous voices in the world now. Because we need this. All of us need this right now, more than ever. So enjoy this time and this unique voice while you take in this episode of Project I'm Speaking. I'm Stacy Parrish. Today's episode is different. Preparing for it felt different, putting it together felt different, and I knew I couldn't just record a standard intro for it because it's the first Project I'm Speaking episode where I feel like I'm speaking as part of it too. My voice shows up here because it has to. Through her podcast, The Deeper Pulse, Candace Shooter is on the precipice of what I feel like is monumental and pivotal work she's dug into, dug under, and peeled back the layers in what she refers to as culty culture by asking the question, what puts the cult in culture? It's a phenomenon that I feel we can no longer afford to ignore or remain in denial about. Candace has been on a healing journey of her own from a variety of new age cults, and she talks about how her work was about snapping her fingers in front of her own face and finding a way to wake up from a trance when you're in the middle of it. And this is everywhere. It's about finding a way to be you, to be authentic, present, and alive in the moment, a way to trust our inner knowing rather than following like anybody else, believing and knowing that nobody knows what's best for us, but us, See, this has been my work as well, and it wasn't until I got to the end of my editing process that I realized that's why putting this episode together was so taxing and why I've been so invested in getting it right. And I'm so honored to have Candace on today and to share her journey and her work with you. So with that, thank you for sitting down with me. The work you're doing is so profound and so important and so foundational to what I believe this country needs to heal. And you are getting at systems and you are getting at inner work, like that inner work that must be done in order to dismantle systems. Mm -hmm. And I got this image in my head. Okay, so I woke up with this image in my head of, I kept picturing a necklace with a dainty chain. And you know how if you don't hang a dainty chain up, if you just drop it in your jewelry box, you end up with like a big knot in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the image that I got. And and what it's like to try to get that knot out <laughs> is like the work that you're doing. Because you have mm-hmm. to be methodical You have to be meticulous. You have to be focused. You have to be gentle. You have to be patient. You can't rush getting that knot out or it gets tighter. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, like, although the way that you and I became acquainted was through the work that you're doing to shine a light on a particular organization, that's not it. Mm -hmm. 
that's yes. not it. Um, your work is, like I said, your work is about what's going on inside of folks. It's not just about one organization being the problem any more than thinking that our last president is what's wrong with politics. Exactly. hundred percent. Yes. And this is why I want to get the word out. Yeah. I want people to understand that it's safe to have a voice and that it's fundamental and it's their birthright. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, first of all, I'm so honored to be here. I'm so grateful for the connection that we have, just the friendship that we've developed over the last few months. And then this is just sort of the icing that we get to have this conversation in a visible way. Um, so just thank you for, for having me here. And thank you for that incredible inter- introduction that that image, I was moved to tears a couple of times when you were speaking, that image of the tangled chain, the necklace. It was so validating to hear you describe it that way because of how much focus and education and research and just deliberateness I have had to bring these topics talking about culty culture and like what puts the cult in culture and how it's actually everywhere and all pervasive. And it's not that organization over there or that show that was featured on a Netflix documentary, how it's inside of us. Mm. And it's, we're all living and breathing cult survivors, if you will. And how, how do we wake up when we're in the middle of a trance? And that's what, when I created the this the culture series, this most recent series on the podcast, that was me just really, you know, sort of snapping my fingers in front of my face, like waking up and figuring out how to wake up in front of people. <laughs> Self-expression for me is something that I have to do out loud and that I, that I need to be witnessed in. So I decided to do this process of healing in my own cult recovery from actual specific organizations. And I thought it was just about, oh, I'll tell the stories of these organizations and maybe some people will relate and it'll apply to their lives and their situations. And then the more that I dove down into the research and explored the cult rabbit hole and realized that it was in direct relationship to the fact that during the pandemic, I went back to school and got my master's degree in social impact and was really in that process looking at how can I be an actualized human, but also an active part of social change, like boots on the ground? And how do I bring all this personal growth awareness into action? Like, how do I actualize it? And when I was doing the culture series and I started telling the stories and I was getting feedback and I was reading the research, I realized, oh, this is all the same thing. Well, really what what hit it on the nail for me was that I I took a break And right before I was set to really put myself out there around this culture stuff, Roe v. Wade was overturned. Mm. 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 And I was laid out like most of us where I was just like blind. I wasn't blindsided completely. Like we saw it coming. And nevertheless, it was this devastation. And I realized when I sort of fell to the ground and was knocked to my knees and it knocked the air out of me. And I thought, oh, should I do this culture thing? It felt like a side thing. Like, oh, I should really be focusing on reproductive rights or advocating for X, Y, and Z. And then I was like, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I shouldn't talk about culture. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like this is the way through that doorway. And these stories 
are specific. And I focus on the specific stories because that's how we get in touch with the actual dynamics. And then I'm doing my best to apply that in broad stroke ways. So the fact that you see that and feel that and acknowledge how complicated it is. I mean, I feel like every time I release an episode, I'm like, what did I screw up? I'm sure <laughs> my blind spots are on full display. And that's part of it though, right? Is sort of being able to be learning out loud and be visible in that learning process with one another. So I just can't tell you how much it means to me that you see it the way that you see it and that you're validating the work in that way because it's it's so meaningful to me and it means a lot that it's landing. So let's go all the way back to square one. Talk a little bit about your childhood. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? And, and how, did, how did little Candace start? So little Candace came into the world in a little, well, adjacent to a very small town, which was my mother's hometown of Eskridge, Kansas, in the middle of the U.S. And it's population, probably at that time, 650 people. It's even less oh now. Oh, my goodness. Super duper tiny. Like the joke is if you drive through town and you blink, you'll miss it right? It's real, real small. And my parents had met, my my dad was from Long Beach, California, but he had some family, his uh, cousin, his aunts and uncles had a farm there. And he had come to visit when he was a senior in high school and he met my mother. So they met when they were teenagers. She was a year older than him. She was from this little town. They exchanged letters for a year or so, and they ended up getting married very young. And my mom eventually moved to Long Beach to be with him. They lived there for a period of time. And then they moved back to Kansas. And this backstory is really relevant <laughs> to the, these moments before I was born because they really shaped the trajectory for my childhood. We, they moved back to Kansas. And 12 days after they moved back to Kansas, my paternal grandmother, my father's mother, committed suicide. Mm. And that traumatic incident in my father's life obviously was pretty pivotal. I was born about a year and a half later. He left when I was three weeks old. He met someone else and abandoned my mother and I. And she and I lived in Eskridge for the first four years of my life. And I was, my my mother was working full time and she was attending night school. So I didn't see her very often. I was left at the neighbor's house my grandparents lived there. They took care of me part of the time. They were lovely. But it was like very much a old school puritanical family. Like nobody smiled in photos. People didn't express their emotions. It was like, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about kind of environment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so my expression was shut down early on and my needs were secondary to our survival. My mom had to do what she had to do. And she ended up about a year later meeting my stepdad, who ended up being my my dad for all intents and purposes as I was growing up. And so about a year after they met, we started moving and we bought a 30 foot, I think we leased it. We didn't buy it. We leased a 30 foot trailer. We towed it around from town to town and we moved almost every year, sometimes twice a year. So I was an only kiddo in the home with them, moving a lot. I was the new girl perpetually. Mm. Um, in the household, my stepdad, he was a Marine who had served two terms in Vietnam and he had severe PTSD and he was a functional alcoholic and he would just rage just Mm. unexpectedly. He never raised a hand at my mother and I, but his words were very assaulting throughout all of my childhood. And then she finally divorced him when I was 16 years old. Mm. And then just to add another plot twist, when I was 17, I failed to mention this, my step, my real father, after my stepfather was out of the picture, 
and he just sort of disappeared. My father came back into my life. Mm. And my dad is um, so much like Lee. It's uncanny. And we look identical, which was just the weirdest thing in the world to meet someone at 17 who is like mm. the spinning image <laughs> of you. Um, and we have a lot, like he's really an artist and a writer and all that. Like the, so much about me made sense after I met him. Mm. So we reunited when I was a senior in high school and have been building a relationship ever since. So mm. that's the nutshell. So how did all of all of that, that, I mean, that's a lot. How would you say that that impacted your challenges around self-expression? I really, I really feel like I didn't have a self. I mean, that's, that might sound a little extreme, but the more that I'm uncovering and healing and working with therapist after therapist over the years, I'm really coming to realize that the self that I did have was so separated from who I learned how to be mm-hmm. that I just very often didn't even have access to, to my deepest. I call it my deeper self because in a lot of the new age circles I was in, there was all kinds of talk about the higher self. And that actually over time just made me more dissociative. It didn't actually mm-hmm. serve me. And so the way that it shaped me, my childhood was that I learned who I needed to be. Mm. And I learned it so early that I didn't even have access to the part of me who I really was. And so even throughout the very beginning of my healing journey, when it would be like, you know, connect to your your true self, I think I was still connecting to some ideal and yeah. not to who I really am. I think that's only in the most recent years that I'm actually like, oh, is that what they meant by the true self? Like I didn't. I didn't even know where she was. She was so buried underneath armor and underneath pretense and underneath the fabricated personas that I had gotten really good at. I mean, mm-hmm. I was in a, I was a straight A student and a good girl and I checked all the boxes. So, I mean, I, I could nail it. And then I would go home and feel lonely. And why, why am I so drained by social interaction? I would wonder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no mystery now, but. Well, it sounds like you were so tiny when all of that survival stuff had to happen. You know, you said you were an infant when you were left alone. Yeah, I was. Not only that, I really understood from as long ago as I can remember that I really felt indebted to my mother and the abandonment of my father and that I needed to be the child she needed me to be in order for us to be okay. Like I got that message pre-verbally before I could even understand what it meant. It was just Mm -hmm. so deeply ingrained into how I've always related to her. Yeah. So you had to be somebody really specific. Yeah. So is there even a way to quantify what that cost you? (laughs) I mean, it saved me. You know, it cost me a lot and it saved me and it saved her and it saved Mm -hmm. us. It cost a lot and it was a price worth paying because it saved us. And now it's about grappling with now what? Like, I don't have to do that anymore. She doesn't have to do that anymore. We get to be who we are. And how does that even look? I so honor the acceptance you have around that. I really appreciate how much work went into that acceptance. Yeah. I mean, there's no way to quantify it. And it's, and also reuniting with my dad made me understand that I also learned to self-sacrifice for the sake of his feelings. Because when he came back into my life, I forgave him immediately. Stacey. Mm. Immediately. It didn't even occur to me. This is why I say, I don't think I had a self. Because everyone around me was like, aren't you angry? Aren't you hurt? Aren't you? And I was just like, no, it's fine. It's fine. He didn't hurt me. He hurt my mom. Mm. 
Like I really believed that for years until I got into a healthy relationship that I'm now in of 10 years committed relationship with a man that I feel safe and can trust. I got angry at my dad 20 years after we reunited for the first time I got angry at him for the first time I had a self that was like, Hey, yo, what the hell, dude? Yeah, (laughs) you bailed. Not cool. You know, so yeah. you mentioned that you walked away from the life that you had built in 2019 because it felt inauthentic. Can you tell me a little bit about what that life was before you talk about walking away from it? Sure. Yeah. When I met my partner in 2012, it took a few years for us to settle into it, but he was able to offer some financial stability to me, just being in partnership in that way. Um, He certainly wasn't and isn't wealthy, but has a lot of stability financially. And so it was a level of privilege that I had moved into at that point. So in 2017, we decided to buy a house together. And it was this gorgeous house outside of Portland on almost two acres with woods and completely private, couldn't see a neighbor, floor to ceiling windows, just a stunning home in nature, which is what we wanted was just a really cozy little nest. And Mm -hmm. we found it. And so we moved into it late 2017. And I had an office just off the front door where I would see clients. And so I had this gorgeous house and this gorgeous office and a full client load. And was part of a business networking group. And I was in a really healthy relationship that was super stable for the first time. And we had our two cats and everything was just what I thought I wanted. And I won't go into the details, but a series of little tiny unfortunate events sort of culminated in me asking the question, like, why do I have everything that I wanted? And I feel so unsettled. Why do I have everything I ever wanted and still feel so unsettled? This is one of those elemental questions that I believe is bubbling up to the surface in our whole culture. And the pandemic was instrumental in getting that started. You know, and it's beautiful and also a lot and can be very confounding. And I was doing, if you ask my clients, I think they would say that I was showing up authentically and I was doing my best and I was, they were achieving like real results. But I felt like a fraud because I felt like I had followed the mold of what a coach is supposed to be. And I felt so isolated. I felt like I had to keep this persona up of this woman who's got her shit together and is going to help you get yours together. And I was on Mm -hmm. social media and I had to have the pictures and I was doing the sales pages and the coaching programs and all the things. And it just felt something felt icky about it. Something felt off. We were trying to keep up with our mortgage payment. And my partner was exhausted because he was driving, commuting from our beautiful little country home (laughs) into the city every day. Mm. And so one day he was in the kitchen making tea. And he said, sometimes I wish we could just sell the house and travel. Mm. And that particular morning in April of 2019, I said, why don't we? Why don't we? Mm. And he looked at me like I was crazy and laughed like she must be joking. And I was like, no, seriously, like what's stopping us? We don't have children. Like why? He's like, well, we just bought the house. It's like, I know, but it's like the house owns us. We don't own the house. Like, What if we just did that? Like, I'm, I just want to, I just, and I really felt this deep ache of like, I don't know who I am Mm. and I'm expressing myself in the world and I'm unfinished. Like, I don't even have a clue what I'm doing. I just felt like a fraud. That's what now I'm realizing. That's why I felt like a fraud. I was like, there's some part of me I don't even know. And I want to express it. And this is not getting me there. Mm. So that's what he's a Capricorn, I should add. And I'm not that I'm super into astrology, but I do find it interesting 
I'm, I'm with Glennon Doyle on this. Like I believe in everything yes. a little bit and nothing all the way. Like, yes. I, I love my her. Favorite yep. thing. Um, so he's very practical. He's like, okay, so we should sell the house next spring. And I was like, no, we got to do it now. He was like, you're crazy. <laughs> and I'm a Leo, by the way. And I said, no, I just, it's just like a gut thing. And I'm really fortunate. I'm with a man who trusts my gut. Nice. So he was like, Okay, so we hustled. We had the house on the market and sold by June. We put our the rest of our stuff in storage and we started traveling. And it's a damn good thing we did because that was June of 2019 and the whole world shut down not long wow. after that. So that was what I meant when I said I left the life. And and I told, made a promise to myself that I was not going to step back into... And I was in a privileged position to do this, but that I wasn't going to step back into the work that I was doing unless I could do it with my full authenticity until I felt like deeply and truly connected to myself. I was going to take as much time as it needed. So Mm -hmm. what we did, that's what I did. Yeah. What did that look like for you then? Well, we, like I said, we put our stuff in storage and we went abroad. So we traveled to 16 countries in four months and that was super eye-opening. It was like kind of mind-blowing, you know, from where I came up with to have the privilege to do something like that was just awe-inspiring. And so I thought it was going to feel a certain way. Mm Mm-hmm. But all the shit that I had refused to feel by being by being productive and in part of grind culture and like keeping it going and being the overachiever, like all the labels that I shed, uh-huh. I couldn't lean on anymore. And so I was just bombarded with anxiety and just, I suffered a lot during that trip. I really did. Mm. I was struggling a lot and our relationship struggled a lot and we almost didn't make it on the other side of it. We almost ended it. The, the pandemic ironically saved us. Like a lot of folks say like, oh, the pandemic was so hard on our marriage because we were stuck together. And in, in our instance, it was like, my impulse is to bail. Like that's my, <laughs> that's my MO is like, I'm uh-huh. out of here. Yep. And so I couldn't, I could, but it was a really complicated thing to do at the time. So I yeah. just stayed and it's the best thing that I could have done because we grew so much in that. And, and, and part of that was that I really buckled down and did my inner work. And asked myself some really big questions. And then I realized, I started looking at my partner, realizing that so much of what I was put off by in him was just about me trying to get from him what I needed to be getting on my own. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) Isn't that the truth? And and what I what I jotted down when you were talking about your journey was, you know, because you were talking about how before you decided to sell the house, you didn't know who you were. So my question was, did you find yourself and you... (laughs) kind of gave me that answer. And I feel like I keep losing and finding myself. Like that's like, that could be like the subtitle of my memoir, <laughs> how I keep <laughs> losing and finding myself. Oh, Candace, I can so relate to that. Like one moment I'm completely clear and can see exactly who I am and what I'm capable of. And seemingly the very next moment, I'm feeling like a schmo, like with no purpose, no faith, no direction. And I really want to thank you and acknowledge the universality of this topic for the, and this whole conversation, right? Yeah. It's like <laughs> constant and continuous, but now I actually know what myself feels like. Like mm. I know what it feels like when I'm with her and I know what it feels like when I'm not. And that's the new information I uncovered. This was, oh, there I am. And so I'm continually losing myself, losing her. And I know how to get back to her now. And that's been the real gift. Yeah. So I don't know if this was your first intro into culty culture or not, but you describe an experience on your podcast with a practice that I feel like planted the seed for that waking up. 
Can you describe that for us? So in 2001, I got involved in a practice called Donok, and it's still there's still centers throughout the states. They've changed their name a few times because of their questionable practices. So sometimes I'm telling people in case they run into it, it's Donok. It's sometimes called Don Yoga. Sometimes it's called Brain Yoga. So it's basically a mix of Qigong, Meridian exercises, a little bit of yoga type discipline mixed in with meditation and breath work. So all of the above. So this particular practice that we would do called Yandan, you would go into the room and do a series of meridian exercises and stretches to kind of warm things up. And then the master would go over to the stereo and she would turn on um, usually Japanese koto drumming music or some really intense music Mm -hmm. to create a high arousal experience. And then she would take on like a yoga posture. And it was usually something where you'd have like a really wide stance. Your knees would be bent really low. You'd be almost squatting. And then you put your arms up in the air with your palms facing up and you'd hold them up high above your head. And the practice of Yandan was to hold this posture for 30 to 40 minutes. Needless to say, the body had a lot to say about that. It was, it was just, it was meant to be sort of like a psycho-spiritual boot camp. And then they would say over and over again, the mantra, my body is not me, but mine. My mind is not me, but mine. And during the course of the practice, I would have every experience you can imagine in terms of physical sensation. And also in terms of, you know, I would, I would fantasize about, you know, telling them to F off. Then I would talk myself into like, no, I'm strong. Look, I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them what I'm made of. I'm so strong. I can do this. I would run the gamut of mm-hmm. ideas about like, oh, this is the best thing I could possibly be doing. Just breathe deeper. And so I would do the breathing exercises. And eventually I would always connect to something other than the pain and other than the chatter. Now it's impossible for me to know now how much of that was a deep meditative sense of stillness and how much of it was me dissociating. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I know that I experienced both. I don't know how much Mm -hmm. of each, but I did definitely feel like I tapped into something underneath all the noise that was me. But I see now that it was still this sort of like shined up polished version of me who could do this like incredibly hard thing. Um, I eventually ended up walking away from the practice because the coercive techniques got really more overt, but that's not to say it didn't leave its mark because it took me a long time to really believe that I did the right thing because they, they would tell me over and over again, like, that's just your ego. Like you, the part of you that's resisting to this, these teachings, is just your ego and your true self wants what the true self always wants, which is we're all one heart and we're creating this vision of heaven on earth. And like, you can be a part of it. And practices were really actually pretty helpful. So I was super torn. Mm -hmm. It was a bittersweet thing though, because you're right. I did connect with that part of me, but it also, I was also told that I didn't know what was best for myself. Yeah. Which was profoundly confusing. Well, and the other thing that you said is what we believe about power dictates the way we express our own power, Mm -hmm. which takes me to those seeds are sown so early in our life that we just recreate that over and over and over again. So we're pulled into these systems and and constantly turn our will and our authority. You talk about authority too, so beautifully. We turn our authority over. And I was having a conversation with my partner this weekend about um, the Clean Plate Club and how you know, we had to finish food and what a, what a horrible exercise in agency that was. Like somebody else knows what your body needs and what your palate desires and yeah, just not having agency over your body, not having choice over your appetite. And I just really believe that that kind of stuff, all of that kind of stuff really sows the earliest seeds of 
self-abandonment and how our will isn't ours and how our inner voice is a bad thing. And these systems perpetuate this by calling inner knowing the ego and, and, and the notion of if you just strive hard enough, if you just do more, the reason it's not working is because you're not doing enough mm-hmm. and just massaging that whole panel of buttons that say you're not enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it was like the the message was because they didn't mention there were these week, weekend workshops we would go to and it was all about, you know, the science of energy and the message was really about where our vibration was. So if I wasn't coming up with the money, then my vibration was off and it was something to feel shameful around. Now, they never used that language, but that was the implication. So like walking away meant admitting defeat. Walking away meant admitting that there was a deficit in me. And that's what gets weaponized. And that, but that belief that there's a deficit in me that they're tapping into started way a long time ago. And they're just, like you said, pushing that button. And I don't know... I have different opinions than a lot of the people in the cultiverse who are teaching and and talking about these things. Like, I don't think that things are as intentional as sometimes people think they are. I mean, you're talking about somebody like Keith Ranieri with Nexium. Yeah, intentional. But like, for the most part in these circles, I don't think they intentionally were trying to coerce me. I think that they believed it themselves. And that if they could get me to sign up, that it was evidence of their ability to manifest something like it was it all sources back to the same toxic shared shame that is being manipulated it's like our our whole culture like the wellness culture the the culture of commercialization like we're all just like yes. trying to to medicate that shame and it's just it gets activated by advertisers or by cult leaders or by whoever and ironically that experience i literally walked out of that dojo and into another cult yeah <laughs> totally like, oh, I'm, and I was like, I'm so strong. Look what I figured out. That will never happen to me again. <laughs> and it brings me back to the necklace. It brings wow. me back to the necklace, pulling those little threads carefully because it's also MLM. Like, well, if you're not getting enough customers, it's because this thing, oh my goodness, single moms and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and women seem to be preyed on more often than men. Yeah. It is so big. And like, how do you get something right when there's no model for it? There's no paradigm to look to, to say, this is how we could do it differently. Like it's all we know, it's the water we're swimming in and we're trying to save each other from drowning. And it's like, (laughs) sometimes we pull each other under and then we're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Did I just like dunk you under the water? Like I didn't even realize it. Like it's so, it's sticky stuff. You're right. It's every damn where. And that's why we have to be coming to understand that we are like, it reminds me of the work of John Bradshaw. And he talks about when we have toxic shame, Mm -hmm. we deal with it in one of two ways. Either we try to be more than human or we become less than human. And I really feel like the antidote is to be human. It's to just really understand that we're not going to figure it out, (laughs) that we're just going to do what we can to honor each other, to be authentic and like to not pretend that there's a formula for this because the whole idea of formulas is part of why we're stuck. Mm-hmm. Just to really lean into the questions and just to say like, what are you really feeling? What's authentic for you? And how can I allow you to feel that, be that and do that without trying to change you according to some framework that somebody taught me? And that's a really, really easy thing to say and like so difficult mm-hmm. to do. It's holding yeah. space for the messy middle. Yes. And the not knowing, like it's okay not to know. And that ability to not know is contingent upon being able to trust ourselves. Yes. 
because it's like, if I can't control the environment around me or the people around me, what else is there? Well, the only thing that I have for sure, like there's a part of me that is untouched by all of this. And if you can't, if you, me, I can't connect to that part, of course, I'm going to do all the other things because it's so terrifying Mm -hmm. to have no ground to stand on. And that's why the inner work when it comes to the systemic work is so key. And it's both and both and both and. Yeah. And we were we've been so rocked since 2020, where there was literally no ground to stand on. Nothing was certain. Nothing was certain. Normal wasn't great and there is no normal and we need to recognize what we've been through and and our reserves on the inside are the only certainty. They really are. Yeah. Yeah. And if we want to impact the outside, we have to find our way to ground in that, especially when the outside is so out of control. Otherwise, we're just adding to the noise or we're in a state of dysregulation, you know, and it's not to say that we can't have moments of dysregulation. I want to be really clear, like I'm no longer striving for that. It never worked and I tried all the things. But like, we have the ability to come to one another and be like, Stacey, like, I'm so dysregulated today. And holy shit, the sky is definitely falling. I'm chicken little (laughs) up and down the street. And like, I just want to name it and be known in that. And just do I have permission to feel that? And we say to each other, 100%, you have permission to feel that. And you're not in bad vibes. And you don't need to turn it around. And you're not being a victim. Like, that's just part of the human experience. Then we can relax and carry that part of ourselves with us into the space where we're trying to do good. Because it's like, if we're just trying to be good, we're not really going to do good long term. Yeah. It's when we show up fully in our humanity that I Mm -hmm. feel like we can have an impact and I'm still figuring out how the hell to do that. Same. Yeah. Same. And I, I feel like our podcast evolutions are really similar. We both began by telling our own stories and then moved into this deeper work and calling. Can you share a little bit about what role podcasting has had and has played in liberating your courageous self-expression? Yeah. Well, I started the podcast a year into the pandemic in March of 2021. And I, I've been writing since always writing has been my lifeline Mm -hmm. since I was really young. And I got my first diary was blue with a little lock in the key. I remember it vividly. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And I couldn't get my voice quite right on the page. I realized that there was a disconnect between the voice that I had when I was speaking and the voice I had when I was writing. Mm. And I wanted to change that. And so I thought, well, what if I do a podcast? give myself permission to talk and say what I want to say and tell the stories I want to tell. And so I decided to take a lot of those writings and speak them out loud and see if they evolved as I spoke them out loud into the ethers. And so that's what started the podcast. And then I realized I needed to step out of the bounds of trusting just my written words, like what I had already planned to say, because I was doing a lot of scripting and reading out loud. And so I decided Mm -hmm. to have conversations and got more and more comfortable allowing myself to just speak off the cuff and feel comfortable in that. And that's kind of what it evolved into. And then the culture series came after that, which was like the next layer for me of like, okay, I practice showing up, I practice showing up off the cuff, but I feel like there's this stuckness that I can't get through. And so I started working with a therapist again and I told her my story. And in there, I said something about these environments that I had been in that were kind of mm-hmm. filthy and that I had left. And, and she asked me a question that was just a pivotal question. She said, Candace, have you ever spent any time in therapy exploring your spiritual wounds? And when she said those words, I knew 
what I needed to do. And so the culture series really was, I, I really need and want to tell this story. And I'm realizing it's a much bigger topic and a much bigger story that needs to be told. And so it really came out of my therapy and my healing and me saying, this is a story I need to express and get outside of my body. And it connects to all this other stuff that I think is worth talking about as well. So that's how it started. And you said earlier, when you left that one culty place, you walked right into another cult. And this is the one that you spent most of your time in and was the most difficult to get out of. So without naming the organization, can you kind of describe what kind of organization it was? Because it's the kind of organization that I don't think everyday people think of as a cult. The organization that I was involved in is still operating. It's a a mind-body fitness organization, a personal development organization. And I worked for roughly three years in the inner circle. So I actually moved to where the epicenter of where the company was located and taught classes in the studio and trained under the founders who were both my bosses and my mentors and really existed in this small ecosystem that was essentially a just another varied polished version of patriarchal dynamics power Mm -hmm. coercion and control. And it made it all the more messed up because it was under the guise of this is actually growing and developing you. And so a lot of the things that I was doing and sacrifices that I were making were for the sake of the greater good, which is what makes it culty. That's one of the, you know, there's uh, Robert J. Lifton, who's an expert in cult dynamics. He wrote a book many, many years ago, and he has these eight criteria for mind control. And a lot of the boxes get checked And just because they're not to the degree of Jonestown, there's the same dynamics operating. And that doctrine over person is one of them. But just quite a few of those boxes were checked. So when I started researching and I was like, maybe there's a scale from one to 10 and maybe this one's a two and maybe that one's a four and maybe this is a six, but the dynamics were so present. And I realized I was always so afraid to call it a cult because of the the cultural connotation of what that means, but we need to redefine that word and call this mm-hmm. shit culty because it is. And just yes. because it's not extreme doesn't mean it's not damaging to people. Yeah. And it yeah. reminds me of domestic violence um, and emotional violence, you know? Well, I mean, he never hit me or exactly. he only hit me once. That's a great example. And I had done that around my own childhood. I was emotionally abused for 14 years and It wasn't until I had a therapist say to me, well, we were having a session, we were talking about the emotional abuse and I was getting all triggered and feeling all the things. And, and I was doing that. I was saying, well, he never hit us. And then I said, well, he used to beat the dogs. Mm. And she kind of dug into that a little bit. And then she said to me, emotional abuse is abuse. And a witness of violence is somebody who's traumatized. Like you witness physical abuse. That's traumatizing in and of itself if we're continually making excuses and like diminishing our own experience and that's the pattern mm-hmm. is diminishing our own experience and saying, well, and excusing, then we're never going to actually deal with any of this because we're like, Oh, it wasn't as bad as Keith Ranieri. I mean, he had sex cult. It's like, I don't care. The yeah. person who is leading still to this day, the organization that I'm talking about is doing it in a way that is not okay. In my opinion. Yeah. And I need to be able to say that out loud. And that, that was really scary, Stacey. Mm. It was really scary before I put out that first episode. I was, I was really scared mm. and I didn't even name the organization Yeah, and I used aliases and I was still really scared. Yeah, I bet you were. 
And full disclosure, I was in that organization, not as involved as you were, but I was I was a part of that organization as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So did you know all along, did something in you know all along that something was amiss? A thousand percent, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say that, like when I said earlier, I didn't know who myself was. It was like, I always, she was always in there. Like, hello. Mm -hmm. Um, I did. And I almost didn't take the job. I was offered the job to work for the company and had an interview and there were some red flags and I was so close to saying no because I could sense that something was off. But I also believed that I was strong enough Mm -hmm. that I could go and like not get tangled in the dysfunction and that I could make a positive difference in this dysfunctional environment that if I was there to influence them, that surely they would be able to see there in their ways and I've seen so many people since that I left the organization in 2007 and I have watched individual after individual after individual tell themselves that story. I know that story. Mm-hmm. I know how that, en- I know how it ends too, which yeah. is why I have so much compassion for people who stick around because it's like, we have such wonderful intentions. <laughs> yeah. And it reminds me so much of sexual harassment too, because it's, it's along yeah. the lines of, is it me? Is it me? Yeah. And, and like, well, I knew better. I shouldn't have, why did I, I shouldn't, what? And, Uh and it just reminds me so much of how freaking gentle we have to be with ourselves. Yeah. I'm so glad that you said that. Yeah. Yes. There was an inner part of you that knew better, but you were also being manipulated beyond Mm -hmm. anything that you could have resisted. That's the point. That's exactly right. The coercion and the way that it functions, it's like learning and understanding that coercion is not somebody holding a knife to your neck. Like it's this really subtle, creative, clever thing. And so understanding the way those mechanisms work, but also really getting like this reflexive thing that we've been taught to do to always look at the victim and be like, what could she have done different? What could they have seen? What could you have seen? And to turn our attention away from the source of the dysfunction is a huge part of why these dynamics are perpetuated. And we spend a lot of energy like, well, what could I have done? And what could I have seen? And what could she have done? And what could she have seen? And it's like, we shouldn't have to do that. Yes. Like let's, let's focus on the accountability and, and, and it's good to, to wake each other up, to help each other see what we could see. Like that's part of what the podcast is doing. Like here's a red flag. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. But it's not so that we're blaming the victims. It's so that if, enough people learn to recognize the red flags, there won't be people to prey upon. You know, it's really about that and not about like it, the, the ball isn't in our court. Mm-hmm. But if we stop following people who are predatory or who have weird undercurrents running around all this stuff, that if we really begin to notice that and stop following those people, that's when we can really, I think, change things. I'm hoping at least. Yeah. And to just to learn not to override that inner wisdom. So how did you get out? I quit four times. (laughs) Ooh, that feels really important. Yeah. The way that somebody untangles themselves from a spider web. Like it's like you move in one direction and you're like, oh, I'm free. And then it's like, oh, there's more fear. And like it was really sticky and really painful getting out. And and there was a lot of, stepping away and love bombing to bring me back into the fold. And there was a real familial um, aspect to it. And that I had grown to genuinely love um, a couple of my mentors. And so that was really easy for the love to stick and to keep Mm -hmm. me there. And so I was 
basically talked out of leaving three times. Um, and I did stand up to um, the, the founder who was the most problematic for me, who is actually still running the organization for the first time. So I had gotten to a point where I finally, she attempted to gaslight me, which usually worked. And I just, I felt it deeply and I believed her and I felt the shame she wanted me to feel. But there was another part of me that had grown so much that I defied Mm. her anyway and said that I wasn't going to let her put that on me anymore. And that was the moment when they let me go and I walked away and spent years keeping the whole thing a secret because I felt so much shame around it in a way I didn't really understand and protecting the company because I still thought that the work was more important than me. Mm. And now? And now I believe that any work that subjugates and stands on the neck of any one person is actually just contributing to the world we don't want any longer. Mm. So even if a handful of people are benefiting, the larger price isn't worth it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for being willing to have this conversation and for the work that you're doing. I mean, it's so... I don't even need to describe it because it's so like we were talking about before we pressed record, like in lockstep, we're like parallel paths moving in the same direction with a really similar focus and aim and, and this kind of container we're creating. It's so valuable and it's so necessary and there's so few spaces like this. Mm -hmm. So I just, I really honor your courage and your willingness to have conversations that are difficult. So thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. <laughs> it's so great to be on the other side. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Full Spirals is made possible by the generous support of our patron producers, Anonymous and Brianne. And a big thanks today to our patron spinners, Jenny K, Deborah O, Joaquin L, and Lori B, as well as Beth W for helping to make this episode happen. Are you a spinner? If not, you can support Full Spirals as a patron and receive peeks behind the scenes, exclusive monthly Lunar Revolution episodes, and of course, a spinner shout out. So just go to fullspirals.com and click the Patreon tab. Join us and come Full Spiral. Full Spirals is produced by Boom Arts in Appleton, Wisconsin. Theme music by Helen Avakian. Production assistance by Jeff Ryan. Please remember to subscribe and review Full Spirals on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. Till next time, take care. <laughs>